Hi, I'm Brent Wilson, and I'm the director, co-writer, and producer of Streetlight Harmonies. As long as there's teenage girls out there, I think vocal harmony groups will be around. No matter where you went in 1956, there was a group doo-wopping. Harmony, harmony, harmony. No band, no nothing. Corner singing, getting that harmony to ring, usually standing under the street light. Started sundown, it seems like there was a group under every street light. You didn't need anything that you and your friends could go on a street corner and sing. Nobody could afford to buy instruments, so you had to imitate the instruments. We paved the way for Rihanna, Beyonce, Destiny's Child. The pay was horrible. We as artists, we were struggling. Our parents didn't know anything about copyright. They didn't know about royalties. The record companies knew that, so they took advantage of it. We sold 77 million records. Somebody got the money, and sure wasn't me. Music has always had a way of being the great common denominator that brought people together. This music moved the country to a place where in the 60s, the civil rights movement was ready to happen. Music has no color. This is about love. It's for the love of the music. When the night has come and the land is dark and the moon is the only light we'll see. That is the trailer for the documentary Streetlight Harmonies, and this is Factual America. Factual America is produced by Alamo Pictures, a production company specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for an international audience. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood, and every week we look at America through the lens of documentary filmmaking by interviewing filmmakers and experts on the American experience. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, to find out where you can see our films, and to connect with our team. In 1950s America, there emerged a new sound that soon swept the nation. Heard on the street corners of urban America, places like New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Detroit. It originated with teenage African Americans and betrayed the innocence of the time. It came to be known as doo-wop. Award-winning director and producer Brent Wilson is shining a light on this now largely forgotten genre of popular music. Using original interviews with doo-wop recording artists, and those they influenced. His documentary, Streetlight Harmonies, not only perfectly captures the zeitgeist of the 1950s and early 60s, but shows how, for the first time, teenagers started recording music for themselves. Factual America recently caught up with Brent from his home in Redondo Beach, California. Brent Wilson, welcome to Factual America. Thank you very much, Matthew, appreciate it. Where are you these days and how are you doing? Sure. I'm in uh, Redondo Beach, which is uh, Redondo Beach, California, just a little south of, uh, of L.A. And uh, yeah, we're, we're hanging in there. It's yeah. um, uh, certainly interesting times. Um, there are days you kind of feel like you're waiting for, um, you know, the locusts to fly over. And there are other days yeah. you feel like this is going to come to an end. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's my dog. <laughs> <laughs> that's OK. We've had uh, we've we've had children make appearances. Uh, so dogs are certainly uh, I guess we're not supposed to. As actor, if you're an actor, you're not supposed to take parts with dogs and children. But still, there, there we go. Exactly. <laughs> um, she's a two-month little Frenchie, and she's very precocious. <laughs> yeah. it's uh, a <laughs> like like most dogs, I think. Um, hey, so um, the film Streetlight Harmonies. Uh, so where can before we start discussing this uh, this film, uh, where can people see it? Sure. It's on video on demand. So we're on uh, Amazon Prime. We're on Apple uh, iTunes. Um, we're on Vugo, other video on demands. But uh, I don't believe we're in the UK or, or in Europe yet. So we're out actually looking for European distribution as we speak. Okay. Well, you and I maybe can talk about that later um, off sure. off camera. Okay. For those who haven't seen the film, and is, is, is most, I mean, actually a good number of our audience is in the, the United States and North America, but uh, obviously we have a global following. Um, for those who haven't seen the film, and they've 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 had the uh, they've had the trailers, so they have a little bit of an idea of what this film's about. But maybe you can tell us 
What is the film about? Sure. Um, it's, a, it's a documentary that traces the, uh, the impact and the history of doo-wop music. And uh, one of the first things we do is dispel the notion that there is a definition of doo-wop music. Um, you know, right out of the top of the gate of the film, there really is no such thing as doo-wop music. It's truly vocal harmony, uh, music that began in the late 40s, um, really peaked um, in the late 50s, uh, early 60s. Uh, so it didn't last very long. But what we discuss in the film is that the legacy that it's felt, you know, through all the way through Motown, the Beach Boys, up through today to, you know, mm. New Kids on the Block and Sync and, you know, all of the pop groups of today, you know, up through uh, uh, K-pop. Right. So it's uh, at a very small window. It had a really big impact, I think, culturally, but uh, but not a very long life. Yeah. And as you said, uh, I've, and I've picked up on when I watched the film, and I, and I highly recommend it to those who do have access to it. Um, um, some people don't call it. They, there are various different names, but where does the term doo-wop come from? Do you know? That's one of, you know, one of the things we kind of talk about. Nobody really is sure where the actual term come from. There's a couple of different stories. There was a writer of uh, the New York Times in the early 70s, and there was a revival, you know, with American Graffiti and uh, Sha Na Na there in the very early 70s is when America was uh, in some really dark times, Vietnam, Watergate, and that, and uh, doo-wop music and 50s music in particular had a really strong comeback. And there was a New York Times writer who claims he coined the phrase doo-wop because of some of the sounds that the Italian groups were making in the background. Hmm. Um, there are a couple of songs that, that, that the Penguins did where you would hear the word doo-wop as part of the background. So right. it's a bit of a myth as to where the actual term comes yeah. from. Well, it may be a, a, a myth, but it's there's certainly a reality that that's there about the song and it's uh, about the music and its cultural influence. Um, and, um, I think I'd like to actually go right into a, a clip, if you if you don't mind. Um, um, one that the first one is uh, from the film. Uh, so for our listeners or those who are on YouTube, you can watch it. It's about the uh, the origins of uh, of of doo-wop or whatever we want to call it, and it's uh, about the origins of singing on street corners. Do you want to set that up for us, uh, Brent? Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, this is taken on very over in the film where we. We wanted to just try to establish where, how this, how this all began, and the innocence of it. Um, I think one of the things that uh, we try to tell with the film is that this really began very humbly, um, and it really began as something, you know, from the streets, from kids. Truly, the first time that kids were making music for kids. When Frankie Lyman and the teenagers jumped over that wall, I think the next day. Teenage groups popped up from coast to coast. All of a sudden, we realized that as a teenager, we can actually, you know, maybe make a record. Frankie Lyman was about the same age I was, so I said, if well, he can do it, I can do it. They caused the epidemic. There were groups in every schoolyard. They were all over, and no matter where you went in 1956, during the summer, no matter what neighborhood, what project, you heard harmony every place you went. Boom, boom, boom. We sing on street corners. If you were a singer, then you knew what I'm talking about. Most of the time, we would get together and sing. I come, I meet you at the corner there. I see you walking up. They got me all get stopped and start singing on the corner together. <laughs> you know, long time before I got with the Drifters, I was with the Crowns, the Five Crowns, and uh, we used to sing on the street corner of 8th Avenue. It used to be the Cadillacs on one corner, it used to be the Five Crowns on one corner, the Hop Tones on another corner. You know, you, you'd light the fire in the garbage can, and, and you'd take a little nip or something, and then you hit a little doo-wop song. And this is where this whole thing called doo-wop developed in the inner city. And that, to me, is what doo-wop really is. It's a homegrown music. That's an excellent uh, introduction there into... into um... <clears throat> to this musical genre. I mean, singing on street corners. I mean, if you did that today, people would think you're crazy, wouldn't they? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's such a, um, it's such a beautiful image. 
And it was, when we were doing the interviews, I remember thinking to myself, you know, I wonder if this is romanticized, you know, to the yeah. point where it's, you know, did this really happen? Yeah. And um, uh, as you saw in that clip and there's some other interview bites later, you know, with, with Charlie Thomas of the Drifters, who's truly one of the great originators and one of the great artists of, of doo-wop, the Drifters in, in particular. And, and Charlie talks about how, you know, yeah, no, we would be, you know, standing over a, you know, a trash can and <laughs> sipping some wine and on this corner and then another corner would be another group and another corner would be another group. And I just love the fact that that image was real and yeah. was true. You, you get the feeling you could have just walked through different parts of urban America, certainly in the Northeast, New York, Philadelphia, places like this. And you would have just, who needed a radio or a transistor radio, if they even existed at that point, you just had music wherever you went, sounded like. That's yeah, absolutely. And Lala Brooks, um, who was also from Brooklyn area up there in New York. And, yeah. and she's talked about how they would sing on the stoops. Mm. So, you know, every stoop would have a different group. And, uh, and then uh, little Anthony of Anthony and Imperials talks about how actually the best place to sing was down in the subways because yeah. it had the echo. Yeah. So, you know, you go into the subways, you know, you would hear these kids singing. And I, I would imagine it was probably a lot, you know, a lot of uh, uptight adults they were upset <laughs> hearing this crazy doo-wop music, but I think uh, you know uh, it would be would be great to uh, to be able to relive those moments yeah. and uh, and see that again today because it really is I think a part of it. Uh, it it's an image of, of inner city. It's an image of an innocent time, mm. and it's uh, and it's very I think uniquely American. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point. I mean. Where did this, I mean, where did this come from? It didn't just happen in a vacuum, did it? So how, how did doo-wop or whatever we want to call it come about? Sure, sure. I think, uh, you know, as we talked to a lot of our interviewees, um, we're really proud of how many we interviewed. We really wanted to capture just as many as we could. Um, you know, uh, we just wanted it to be an overwhelming amount sometimes because we wanted to have so many people telling their stories. And they would all kind of say the same thing. It was a repeated um, story, which was, you know, a lot of them were coming out of gospel. Mm -hmm. You know, they were, they would sing in church. Um, and, uh, you know, at that time in America, you know, you couldn't afford instruments. You know, there was, there was no music programs in schools. Uh, there was no money for instruments. Um, so, you know, kids would just try to make the sounds of intro of instruments. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, they couldn't sing in their houses. It was hot outside, you know, it was hot inside. You'd go outside and um, and you would just sing. So I think it was just birthed out of a need to create, right? You're you know you're a young teenager. You've got time on your hands. You can't afford an instrument. You just got to create. And it truly comes from that honest, innocent place that true art comes from. Mm. And, and and talking about where the art comes from, I mean, you've you also deal in the in the uh, in the film, I think quite well with the the motivations for um, for why these people were especially the male groups were singing um, and you've got we've got another clip I know it's a bit early in the podcast but let's go I'd like to play that here now about uh, why these guys would start these uh, these groups maybe could you set that up for us if you don't absolutely I think this is uh, again this was one of those questions that we asked that was a very consistent answer and my guess is if you ask any young artist today, while they started, I'm going to bet they would give you this exact same answer. When you're singing those those sweet love songs like that on on the street corners, where there were girls always around, All right. and that was <laughs> and, and, and That's what, that was it. That's what you that was, I put my baseball yeah. glove down, yeah. my bat down. Everything, this is right? what I want to yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. indeed. <laughs> But the main thing is, was all the girls used to come to the best group, and we were the best group. Our, over the hop tones and and the moon glow, and all, we were the best group. They used to come and crowd and load up our corner, you know. And that was the, that's the most marvelous. Uh, excuse me, why this is my younger days. We wanted attention, you know, and that was the easiest way to get attention. Well, it was because of the girls. All the fellas wanted the girls. <laughs> so that was the coolest thing in the world. That you didn't need a band. You didn't need anything that you and your friends could go on a street corner and 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 sing, and and girls would like that. That's a big deal. <laughs> That's a really big deal. Oh, man. Oh, man. 
So that was the beginning of that evolution. I went from the street corner to the subways and the hallways of Brooklyn. And you remember, as we keep doing this, we're getting better and better and better at our craft. It wasn't thought that we would eventually go on to uh, be professional. It was just the fact that we were enjoying ourselves. As long as I had a street light or a bunch of guys together standing on the corner, on the stoop, it didn't matter. For me, it was the inner city urban sound. For me, it was camaraderie, it was achievement, it was a coming together of uh, a bunch of guys singing their hearts out, making harmony together. Of the so, as we've discovered in this clip, it's it's all about the girls. Um, now, what was the what was the motivation for the women? I think competition. I think um, you know. I uh, we as they kind of discuss in the film, and Lala talks about, and it's you know, if the if the boys can do it, why can't we? Mm-hmm. Um, and I do. I think too. There was just. I think when you hear those harmonies. Um, I think you just want to be a part of it. Yeah. I think it was a, it was a movement that started that everyone wanted to to participate in. I mean, this I, I probably ask this again later in the in the in the discussion. But what struck me is also it, it it seems so much of it is just about a love for singing. It's I mean, obviously they talk, one of them talked about wanting to be noticed. They're teenagers, but it, they didn't really seem to be doing it for the money, were they? No, not at all. No, none of them, um, uh, I think, ever set out to you know say, okay, let's start a group, let's go get a record deal, let's record a song. You know, all of this really began innocently enough to just to sing and to harmonize and uh, you know fill their evenings uh, with something to do, um, something cre- creative outlet. Mm. And um, and then I think you know then as we discuss in the film. You know, there was a song that we call The Big Bang, you know, Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers and Why Do Fools Fall in Love. And I think once that happened, um, that was the spark where, you know, Mm. the the groups, these kids realized, well, hang on a second, maybe we can do this, too. And then, then of course, you know, the inverse was the music industry going, hey, we can make some money off of this. Um, So once that spark was lit, you know, it was uh, it was on. Maybe this is a good point to uh, talk about um, some other issues that the film raises because it's not—it's uh, all not just—it's just not all fun. Obviously, there are some other things that were <laughs> happening. I mean, they were—they were—it uh, wasn't all smooth sailing, was it? I mean, it was. There were teenagers. There were the record companies you've already re- alluded to. Um, maybe you can talk about some of those issues. Absolutely, I think that you know, one of the elements that we really wanted to to discuss in the film that. This music began innocently enough, um, but that these artists, you know, they paid a heavy price for being first. Um, As as I was saying earlier, you know, this was the first time that music was being written by kids for kids. You know, these weren't the real building writers um, that had been there in the four and the 40s and 50s. You know, white men who went to an office in a suit and tie and they sat down and wrote songs for a living. You know, um, this was the first time where a kid could come in and, you know, knock on a door and say, I've got a song. And um, and somebody could say, yes, I'll I'll record that song. Here's your contract. These kids were always under the age of 18. Um, you know, their parents were usually uneducated um, or poor. Um, there was no lawyers, entertainment lawyers or anything like that. And I believe it was Jimmy Merchant in the film that says, you know, he came home, who's in Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, for Waddy Fools Fall in Love. And in that song, um, you know, he brought the contract home to his father to sign. And his father was a janitor, I believe, at a school. And I believe he made $15 a week. And Amazing. they were offering Jimmy $20 a week to sing, you know, this song. So why wouldn't my father sign that? <laughs> you know, it's there was no such thing as royalties and yeah. Uh, so yeah, there was a, they, they paid a heavy price to be first and, uh, the record companies, uh, you know, knew they were young and, and naive and, uh, and they took advantage of them. And, uh, a lot of them do not receive royalties. Um, uh, even though these songs still can, can earn millions of dollars. Yeah. I mean, what, 
what's what struck me is um obviously that that comes up and they're not not happy about it but i was surprised at how i mean i didn't really sense much bitterness about it to be honest no absolutely matthew i think that's um one of the things that that i took away from the film as well with that as we were as i would sit down and we would interview these artists for hours you know we would sit down with them and and have them tell their stories and uh, i think we ended up with 127 hours of interviews wow. And, um, but by the time we would kind of get to the end and kind of get to the wrap up, they all are, I think, at peace with, you know, the price they paid. Um, And I think they look back on the impact that they made socially and culturally and um, have kind of come to terms with it. Um, I think that it's, it's there's an element of, you know, I think even Terry even says that they would do it all over again. Yeah. You know, that it was so much fun that they did have an impact um, culturally, which is really hard to do. Yeah. Um, and it it gave them a, a career and a chance at a life that they probably wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, so, yeah, I was I'm like you. I when I when we did the interviews, um, I was surprised that there there wasn't a bitterness. And yet there, there was a there still was a um, a pride that came with making this music and being happy that it's still here. Yeah. You're talking about pride. That reminds me of Charlie Thomas is just makes, makes it in no uncertain terms that you know that he was, they were the best group drifters. Absolutely. You know, you know, <laughs> you know there's all these other folks, but you know, we were obviously the best ones. I mean, Absolutely, it, yeah. and they've aged extremely well. I mean, they were teenagers and only, only I say in the 1950s, but, um, uh, I mean, one other thing we you, you talk about is because um, obviously most of these people are uh, black, or as we now mostly call it, say uh, African American. Um, uh, the sort of the issues they faced from uh, in terms of racism that that is a, a not a theme, but certainly that is something that is that you'd more than touch on in, in the film. Absolutely, it was a story element that we felt needed to be told as well. Um, that you know, there's a dark side to this music. There's always, and you know, there's always a, a tales to the heads. And, and a lot of these young artists were, you know, 15, 16 years old. It's a, it's a music that um, began in the North, yeah. you know, it's, 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 it's associated with New York. And so as these groups started to tour, they would go down South and they would experience, you know, just over racism um, that, you know, no one should ever experience, much less a teenager. Um, what experience? I think what we'll do is because that I think will bring us to our um, the th- the third clip that I think we'd like to play that uh, is about their experience these uh, these young black teenagers from places like Philadelphia, New York, Newark, who then would go on tour through the South and what it was like performing in the uh, South of of Jim Crow in the late fifties and, and early sixties. And uh, so we'll also go to a break. Uh, listeners and watchers can watch, listen or watch that clip. And, uh, and then we'll come back to the rest of the uh, podcast. It was all brand new to us. The South was different. <laughs> the South was a lot different. It, was, it wasn't as much fun. I was standing by my window on a cold and I'll never forget Birmingham, Alabama. It was scary. It was a scary time in my life. During 1959, we did a six-week tour of one-nighters in the South. And that was a mind-boggling and eye-opening situation for all of us. We would see people outside, sticks, guns, better not get off that bus, boy. It was a heck of a time, man. You know, we knew what we were reading on in the papers. We heard it on the news. We saw things on TV about what was happening in the South, but we really didn't have a clue. To play the South was like, it was hard for me as a teenager, as a young teenager. I don't know about the other girls because they were 18 and maybe they were more mature than I was. I wasn't as mature to understand racism 
and I was angry. Oh, phew, rough, man. Some of it was rough, you know. We had to go to the back room, going to the south, we had to go to the back room to eat. We couldn't sit down and rest around. <clears throat> they wouldn't They wouldn't serve you. They wouldn't serve you back then. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with uh, Brent Wilson, uh, director and producer of Streetlight Harmonies, which you can find on video on demand, certainly in uh, North America. Um, I would describe it as basically a history of rock and roll uh, squeezed into an hour and 20 minutes, basically. Um, There's a lot of stuff we won't even touch on. I mean, you've got you get the wall of sound, we get girl groups, we've got Phil Spector and Jeff Barry, people like that. Uh, but I wanted to, we just seen this clip or listened to this clip about um, um, so sort the of racism that uh, many of these mu- artists faced. Um, one thing that struck me, because, um, because they had these other white groups that were traveling around with them, um, developed these friendships. Um, I'm here in England. Had a nice little section in there about the Beatles, uh, but one thing that struck me is this this visceral disgust about what happened with the song Shaboom. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I mean they were not happy. So you had the chords sing, played the original, and then the crew, this Canadian group. And I'm not picking on Canadians, but this group from Canada called the Crew Cuts came in and then hit it, scored a number one. What I mean, but it it seemed across the board. Everyone had nothing good to say about that. Yeah, I think that was. Um for me as a, as a director, that was just the clearest example of a song that was just butchered um, when it was covered by a white artist, which was, you know, the common practice at the time. Yeah. You know, Pat Boone and everyone covering Little Richard. And it was just, that's what, that's how the music industry, you know, further, you know, made money off of these artists. But the song Shaboom, if you've ever heard it, if you haven't, you know, it's a uh, it's a great song. It holds up to this day. Mm-hmm. And for for me as a director in the editing bay, there was just no greater example of yeah, just taking a great song by a great African American artist mm-hmm. and just butchering the heck out of it <laughs> with you know some white guys out of Canada <laughs> and, and and it being successful. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think that's the you know that's the sin yeah. is not doing it and covering it. But doing it and covering it and it being more successful than the original. Yeah. And I, I actually Googled it. I just put in Shaboom. And yep. unfortunately, the first thing that comes up is of image of the crew cuts. You know? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so then I double check because I'm, I'm quite familiar with it for various reasons, mainly because, well, I've got children and uh, they, they love the Cars movie and it's in there. And yes. I, was, I was happy to see that they used the chords version in the. Uh, in uh, cars, so that's yes. I felt a little yeah, bit better. Me as well. <laughs> I was as well. Yeah, I was like, oh, thank gosh. <laughs> um, so, I mean, we—I don't want to give away the film. I, I think everyone should watch it. It's if anyone, well, even if you're not interested in this in this time period, um, there's there's so much to take away from it, um, and some amazing music. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, Brent, what is the legacy of doo wop? or vocal harmony you know, music of this time. You know, I, I, um, I, I feel like it's, it's, it's still with us. I think when you, you know, you hear K-pop or you hear new direction, you hear these vocal harmonies, you know, you see young boys or young girls outperforming today. Um, you know, that all began, you know, on a street corner. Um, little Anthony talks about hip hop. You know, you see four or five kids standing on a corner today rapping. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that's a direct line right back to little Anthony and the Imperials standing on a corner, yeah. you know, singing. Uh, so I think the, the legacy is, um, is, is kids creating music for themselves. Mm. You know, when you see, uh, 18, 19, 20 year old, you know, writing, creating music, um, that he or she is trying to market and sell and 
and share with other kids, that's doo-wop. Yeah. You know, that's, that all began with, you know, Frankie Lyman and the teenagers mm-hmm. and why do fools fall in love? Um, so from one from business level, I think that's it. And then I think, I just think great music just lives on forever. And, uh, this music is in films today. You know, you'll see it, like you said, with your, in the, you know, you'll hear it in the, you know, an animated film like cars, yeah. um, you'll see it in commercials, you'll hear it in commercials. Um, so this, this music will always be there. That original source of doo-wop will always be there because it's just simply great. Music. Yeah. And I mean, again, uh, we were talking about the, the race side of things as well, but you know, you could say it helped, helped at least carry along the civil rights movement. There's all kinds of other, other, other legacies that, uh, if, when people finally uh, or haven't had a chance to watch the film yet, we'll uh, we'll definitely discover um, and 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 well worth their time if if to to do so. Um, I just want to change well, not change tag really, but just ask you how did you get get involved with this project? Uh, was this your idea? How how did this all start? Sure, sure. Um, our lead producer uh, Tim Heddington uh, oh. is uh, out of Dallas, Texas, and Tim is a lover of art, oh. a lover of music. And um, loves to watch music, and we've done doing some other projects with Tim and and our other producer Teresa Page, mm-hmm. and Teresa and Tim have a production company called Leyline Entertainment. Okay, and uh, Teresa and Tim were just discussing one day um, that you know that there really been uh, a documentary done on on doo-wop music, and Tim had just asked that question because he was such a fan of the music. And I, uh, so Teresa and I were talking, I thought, well, surely there's been a film done on this. It's so Mm -hmm. impactful and so important. And and there's, I can think of 20 different documentaries on the history of rock and roll, the history of jazz, and they just did 70 hours on the country, history of country music. And, you know, I saw surely to God, there's a documentary on doo-wop. And we started to poke around and realized no one had ever done a film um, or even a really serious study on the impact of doo-wop music, Mm -hmm. vocal harmony. And Tim said, well, well, we've got to do one. And um, I had known Tim and Teresa um, for some time. And we worked together on uh, back in the NSYNC Britney Spears days, which yeah. is my, my background and Teresa's background. And, uh, and Tim said, let's do it. Let's do a documentary on doo-wop music. And uh, he had the faith um, that the film would find an audience. And uh, Teresa and Tim had the faith in me to yeah. try to tell the story. And um, it really began very just in a very honest, mm-hmm. honest place. I mean, I'm asking because I haven't actually had a chance to watch uh, this other documentary called Hitsville, but do they even make reference to doo-wop in there? Because obviously there was, it, it build on, built on doo-wop. No, they really don't. Um, no, they, they, they really don't. There's, uh, again, there's uh, uh, one of the things we, one of the themes of the film is kind of a lack of respect for doo-wop. You know, mm-hmm. there's just, um, I think that's why there was never really anything done on it before. I don't yeah. think. Yeah. Anybody ever gave it much thought, um, and uh, it just didn't last very long. It had a really short life, um, and I think that hurt it. I think the name Duop yeah. hurts it, um, and uh, yeah, nobody just yeah, it just never gave it the respect it deserved. And then in telling the story, how did you uh, how did you craft that? Because it's not strictly linear like a lot of um, music docs are. I mean, it, it kind of is a as a maybe a backbone that's a bit linear, but you kind of dial it backwards and forwards, almost literally at the uh, in one of the graphics. So, uh, who helped you with that, or is that your your idea? What? How did you craft? Sure, that yeah, um, we had a great co-writer, my editor uh, George Belias and yeah. uh, Belias, excuse me, and um, uh, we they set out with certain goals, yeah. um, certain themes that I knew we wanted to touch on, um, but for the most part, uh, as the documentary filmmaker. You know, you go in with questions, um, things that you think you're going to, you know, you're going to get answers to. But I, I just always try to listen when I ask my questions and let the interviewee take me down certain roads. Yeah. And uh, that's how you end up with, you know, 100 and some odd hours of footage <laughs> that you've got to, you know, then cut down to an hour 23. But I, I find it's the only way to really tell a story objectively is to just listen and let them kind of guide you as to where they're going to go. And um, we, but we knew there were certain things we wanted to do. We wanted it to look great. You know, I wanted we shot it in 4K. Mm. Um, we wanted it to look big and expensive. 
Mm-hmm. I wanted beautiful graphics for it so that it looked current and present. I didn't want it to feel like it was in the past. I wanted mm-hmm. to make it feel like it was in the present. Yeah. Uh, we wanted to use a lot of music. Again, that was Tim and Teresa who allowed us the, the financial ability to be able to clear you know, 35 songs, I believe, during the film, um, which is a lot for a music documentary. Um, And uh, we just, I wanted it to feel fresh. I wanted it to feel present. Um, And because my hope and goal was that it would be seen by people who don't like doo-wop music. If you like doo-wop music, you're going to love this documentary. But so I always say, you're going to come to the table. I don't need to do anything to bring you to the table. Mm. But how do I get maybe your son who heard, you know, Shaboom yeah. and go, oh, I love that song. How yeah. do I get, you know, how do I get that person to watch the film? Um, and that was the way we approached it to, uh, and it's why we keep it very short. Um, you know, we don't, I you know, wanted it to move quickly. Um, that was a very conscious decision because um, we just, I wanted it to feel fresh and when you walked away, you were humming and whistling, and you wanted to go learn more and do yeah. some Google. Hey, can I can I thank you for keeping it relatively short? Because I uh, a pet peeve of mine these days. I've watched a lot of. I mean, they're they're good films. They're excellent films. Many of them, but they always seem to be about twenty minutes too long. You know, absolutely. And, yeah, yeah. And getting, I was, I saw it. It was like, wow, it's only an hour and twenty, and then, and there's not a wasted second. I I would say. In, in that thank film. You. Yeah, thank, yeah, you. thank I, you very much. Yeah, that was a really was a conscious decision. Um, I mean, you know, we could have very easily made the film two hours long and expanded on things, but I think it, you know, it doesn't serve the greater audience. Yeah. Um, you know, you can, you know, you, you can make this film six hours long and you can never truly tell the entire story of doo-wop music, even though it only lasted a few years. That's why Ken Burns, I think, did country music over 70 hours and he still ended it like the year 2000, <laughs> you know, exactly. he did 70 hours. Yeah. Um, so you're never going to be able to tell the story. So just make it the best story you can. And that, that was the way we approached it. Okay. So I have a question for you, because I, I think uh, I wanted to ask you about getting this film released, because I I sense there's a story here, uh, because... I've seen some places the film's listed as 2017 and then other places listed as 2019. And I gather it's released on the 31st of March of 2020. So uh, what were the, did you, when was this film made and did you, did you have any challenges getting it released? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. The, the film took a long time to produce. Uh, as most documentaries do. I'm yeah. not saying anything different than any other documentary filmmaker. They're, they're generally labors of love. You know, they're not, uh, 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 they they just take a long time, yeah. Um, and particularly if you're trying to be you know financially responsible, right? Um, they can even longer, uh, which we tried to do. Uh, so it took, gosh, I think you know three years of kind of stopping and starting uh, to get the film going, and then you know you you do the festival circuit, yeah. and you know you uh, we were very fortunate we appeared at, uh, at Doc NYC. Um, and some of the offers that kind of come in are always, you know, you just don't feel or worthy. And we were in a situation where fortunately we could wait for the best offer. Um, uh, Tim and Teresa truly believed in making sure this film had the widest release possible, that this film was seen by as many people as possible. So Tim and Teresa were really adamant that this is an important film. It's not a film that necessarily needs to make a lot of money. It need, the story needs to be told and these artists need to be heard. And, uh, I, you know, all the credit to them for having the faith uh, in the project to, to hold out until we got a situation where we could get on a, an iTunes and get in an Amazon and, and get ourselves to, to, the, to the broadest audience possible instead of just a, a small niche audience. Yeah. I mean, does, do you think that's a problem with the industry with trying to get distribution? I mean, because this, this is a great film. I don't see why, you know why you, it, 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 so many filmmakers find this difficult, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, yeah, that's probably a whole nother, yeah, uh, it is, yeah, but, whole nother, <laughs> but no, there's, um, it's so tough these, with documentaries because, um, you know, nowadays there, there is a change <clears throat> to in the, in the past. I think documentaries were always kind of considered educational yeah. and, you know, they served their purpose, but they were not, uh, money makers, you know, they were just so you had that dynamic, 
And then on a dime, it seemed to switch to, you know, after I think maybe 20 feet from stardom or a few others where there was just this huge surge. And now you get the, you know, this crazy tiger one, I don't know what it's called on Netflix that, you know, millions and millions of people are watching them. And now the, you know, the table is turned. Now the studios only want documentaries that they think they can make a ton of money off of. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at our film, it's a small film. It's a sweet yeah. film. Yeah. Um, but it's not going to be, you know, uh, one of these murder documentaries or yeah. you know, this crazy tiger thing. But that's what everybody wants. Yeah. You know, everybody is after now is they now look at documentaries and go, okay, you know, how many millions can we make off of it? So it just literally went from overnight from, eh, you know what, this is a great film. The story needs to be told. This is really nice that people get this too. Oh my gosh, we can make a ton of money off of this. Yeah. How much money can we make? And so if you're somewhere in the middle, um, it can be a difficult, a difficult spot to be because um, we tried to make the film commercial. Um, we wanted it to be seen by a broad audience, yeah. but it's not murder and mayhem and, you know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, there goes, there's no cults. Yeah. There's, you know, it's <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. There's no blood. There's no um, yeah. bullets flying. No one's in danger, put in danger or, or in harm's way. Um, yeah. and, and you and I are laughing, but I, I, I mean, I do some work with a, a production company here and I, you know, I've been in off, uh, you know, back when we did have meetings face to face and you have, you have people in there and saying, you know, what's, I don't know. There's just not enough danger here. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to get this in front of enough eyeballs, you know, so uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's sweet. Might, it might do okay at a festival, something like that, you know. Exactly. And that's our film. And it's, it's really interesting because it really did turn on a dime. It yeah. really did, you know, just in the last couple of years where it's like, you know, you know, how, you know, is, can this film, you know, make millions of dollars? Can it compete at an international level with a studio film? Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I think a lot of good stories are getting lost um, in that in that transition. Interesting. Interesting. I, so I want to talk about uh, another project of yours because in in the uh, in Streetlight Harmonies, you've got um, Brian Wilson makes an, an appearance. So you've also got a uh, as if you're not busy enough already. You've got a you had a Brian Wilson doc that's also come out this year. How did I mean? Were you literally doing them at the same time? How are you juggling that? No, we fortunately no. Yeah, fortunately <laughs> no. But uh, after we had uh, had finished up uh, Streetlight Harmonies and we just developed a really nice relationship with Brian Wilson's manager, um, I, we approached them, Tim, Teresa, and I, and um, about a, a documentary about Brian Wilson, uh, the Beach Boys, because you know Brian is was the opposite um, of Streetlight Harmonies, and that you know I think there's already. There's already two, at least two documentaries done on Brian Wilson. There's three or four on the Beach Boys. You know, there's dozens of books on Brian Wilson. And there's even a feature film, you know, yeah. Love and Mercy. Yeah. And it was the opposite. And but yet as a as a fan, I, I never felt like I really knew who Brian was. Yeah. Um, I still never got a complete picture of who Brian Wilson, the person was. And so uh, we approached uh, uh, Gene Sievers, Brian's manager, Tim, Teresa and I. And uh, and asked them if they'd be interested in, in us having a go at it, mm. and uh, and that proved to be its own crazy adventure. <laughs> <laughs> well, we probably and I say that with uh, pains, laughs of pain. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's an enigmatic figure, as I think you said. I mean, he's uh, uh, he's this great mystery guy out there. I mean, yeah. uh, for those, I mean, I always forget with our. I'm not exactly sure what our demographic is, but uh, just to repeat that Brian Wilson is the founder and uh, one of the members of the uh, of the Beach Boys, which uh, for certain a generation or two is a was a is a huge name. Uh, but uh, I mean, you had your own experience with that, but is uh, uh, has, has that been released? It has not. No, okay. We're out. Uh, we finished the film. We were supposed to appear uh, at Tribeca. Okay. But, yep. And uh, of course, that uh, that got canceled, um, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, it's put us in a tailspin. Yeah. Um, I, I, it says for everybody. I think the documentary industry right now is just, uh, it's just in a tailspin right now. Everybody's trying to figure out yeah. what to do, how to do this, uh, how do you get your film seen? Um, 
it, it, and I don't know if anybody even has the answers yet. Um, we're, we're in that vacuum, yeah. unfortunately, with Brian Wilson right now. Yeah. Because uh, just for our listeners who don't know, basically how it's worked in the past up until now is that you got your film into festivals, and then that's when you met distributors or distributors would come on board and say, hey, we like that film, and then we want to you know, get it in get it a theatrical Absolutely. release or VOD or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And I think with Brian, uh, what really hurt us is that it's a very uh, deeply personal and intimate film. It's extremely intimate. Mm. And, um, and there's never been a film like it. Um, I, can, I can say um, the way that we shot it, the way we did it, the way we got Brian to tell his story has never been done before. And um, so it's a little bit different and it's deeply, deeply personal. And um, it, it it needs to be played with an audience. Um, you know, it's, you know, I think we, for this film, there's 54 songs. Um, and it's, you know, we mixed it in 5.1. Again, we shot it in 4K. And um, it's just, it's a film that needs attention. You know, you need to pay attention to it. It's, it's deeply intimate, deeply personal, yeah. um, very nuanced because Brian doesn't speak a lot. You really need to watch his face and his, his reactions and his emotions. Um, and watching it at home during a pandemic is not the way for the film to be seen. Interesting. And that's the way a lot of films are being sent out. Um, and I, you know, we were, I think two weeks away from Tribeca when everything hit and everything got canceled. And uh, I was actually shopping for a suit uh, when they canceled it. <laughs> My wife was like, you're wearing a new suit uh, when they canceled it. And we were playing on a Saturday night yeah. um, in their largest theater. I think it was 900 seats. It was almost already sold out with two weeks to go. Mm. Um, so I, I know in my heart, the film would have played really well with, a, with an audience yeah. um, and it needs to be seen with an audience. So um, unfortunately, you know, we're no different than I think so many other documentaries yeah. right now. So you're going to hold off until you can get in until the, um, to the theaters open up. Is that exactly is that the yeah, plan? Yeah. So I think our plan is now is that uh, we're going to take the film. We're going to hope for festivals to come back. Yeah. Um, you know, we're Sundance is in January. So we've mm. got our fingers crossed that, you know, next year, uh, the festivals can, um, you know, we'll make a comeback and, and get the film seen that way. Okay. So, I, uh, so that's our hope, but it's edited, it's done yeah. and, uh, it's sitting there ready to go. And I can't wait for people to see it. It's a beautiful film. Uh, if you love Brian Wilson, um, if you love the beach boys, if, you've ever had anyone who's suffered from mental health. Um, I think it's a film that uh, will touch uh, and move a lot of people. Well, I, I definitely, we look forward to seeing it and uh, hopefully you can get it released relatively soon. And we would uh, love to have you back on and oh, very much so. Absolutely. It would be great. I, I, that seems like a great place to end this discussion, believe it or not, but uh, cause we are coming kind of towards the end of our, of our time together. But I wanted to give the last word to the doo-wop artists, actually, on this, on this particular podcast. And um, you've, uh, you've alluded to it already. Uh, you got your start with um, uh, music videos and things, Britney Spears, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys. I'm sure there's loads of others. Um, I'm, not exact, I'm not asking you to tell any tales or anything, but... What we kind of already touched on this, but what struck you about the doo-wop artists, doo-wop artists versus other artists that you have worked with over the years? That's a great question. I haven't even asked that question before. Um, I, I love the um, the sense of commitment that they still have in their seventies. Mm. Um, I, I love their passion that they have. In their seventies, um, uh, you know, I, I, will we be talking about some of these artists today? Will Justin Bieber be performing in his seventies? You know, still committed to the music, still committed to telling his story. You know, Katy Perry. You pick your artist today that is huge. You know, will they in their seventies and eighties? want to be out there telling their stories, singing their songs. I don't know. I, I have my doubts. Mm. Um, so I think the thing that I took away from all of those artists was the passion that they had to a lifetime commitment of music. Mm. They committed at a very young age 
you know, 15, 16 years old to a lifetime of creating music and sharing music. And here they are, you know, they're still doing it. You know, they're still out there. You can, you know, you can find Charlie Thomas out on tour. You can find La La Brooks of the Crystals out on tour. And I love that. I love the fact that they committed. There was no plan B. It was like, I'm going to be, you know, an artist. I'm going to be a singer. And they're doing it. And I hope that the artists today, and it's the same with Brian Wilson. You know, Brian Wilson tours nonstop. And we talk, Nick Jonas is in the film. And, you know, Nick Jonas even says that. And Nick, Nick Jonas, we talk about how he kind of follows a very similar path with Brian. He goes, you know, can I see myself doing 180 shows at 75? I don't think so. You know, so I think that's what I took away is that they committed to a lifetime of music and they're still out there doing it, man. Wow. Well, I said I was going to give the, uh, it, through you, Brent Wilson, I was going to give the, uh, the do up artists the last word. So I will give them the last word. I'll leave it, leave it there. And I just wanted to uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to have you on the uh, Factual America podcast and uh, hope to have you on again soon, given that uh, we've got the Brian Wilson doc hopefully coming out uh, in maybe 2021, uh, if not sooner. Um, and uh, just to remind our listeners and watchers, we've been with the director and producer of Streetlight Harmonies which is available on Amazon Prime and other video-on-demand uh, channels. Um, also want to remind you, well, first of all, I should give a shout-out to This Is Distorted Studios here in Leeds, England. And please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see No, I won't be afraid No, I won't be afraid Just as long as you stay You're staying by me So darling, darling, stand by me Oh, stand by me Oh, stand You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.